Hello listeners, my name is Maria and welcome to this week's edition of Listening In. Today, I'm very pleased to be bringing you this special show with the help of Andrew Puglas for the pronunciations of the indigenous words and Willow for their beautiful rendition of Water is Life, which opens and closes this reading. And of course, a special thank you to Jody for her permission to share her words. This was recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish and Humcaminum peoples. All my relations come, every nation come, all my relations under the sun. We are one, we are praying, come, we are praying, come, we are the song and we Tony.
Rebuilding Indigenous Nations for a Stronger Canada. Jody Wilson-Raybould. Each of us, in our own way, is a Hiligatse. I was asked to speak about the theme standing in your power, using your voice. I know something about power, the power each of us can and does have about using one's voice. I suspect we all do. I want to reflect on our power and our voices from four different but intimately connected perspectives. My own personal journey, the colonial experience with respect to Indigenous peoples and changing power structures, my ongoing experience as a member of parliament and being the first Indigenous and only third female Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, particularly around the work of reconciliation and some final reflections on our country today and creating balance and a vision for our collective future. I come from the Muskamau Tswaladinuk Lequistauk people of Northern Vancouver Island who are part of the Kwakwakeluk, also known as the Kwakwala-speaking peoples. We are a matrilineal society, which means that descent is traced and property is inherited through the female line. We have hereditary chiefs, always men, who are groomed for leadership. My father is the hereditary chief of our clan, the Eagle Clan. His name is Hemes Klalilikla, which means number one amongst the eagles, the chief who is always there to help. He was given his name in a potluck, which is our traditional institution of government, one that we still practice. It is here where our names are passed down or given from generation to generation. It is where laws are made, disputes are settled, people are married, and where wealth is redistributed. In our potluck, the highest ranking male leaders are called Hamatsa. Rank is reflected in positions and names, which bring them considerable responsibilities and obligations. My grandmother's name was Pugladi, the highest ranking name in our clan. Her name means a good host, a name that was given to my older sister Cory at the same time I was given my name. My name, Puglas, means a woman born to noble people. These names were given in a naming potluck at Guilford Island when I was five and my sister six. My grandmother, Pugladi, ensured that both my sister and I knew our culture, our values, the laws of our big house, and how to conduct oneself as a leader. We continue to learn. In our system, I am a Hilgatse, a role always held by women. One of my jobs is to lead my Hamatsa, the chief, into the big house. This role can be translated as one that corrects the chief's path. We show them the way, a metaphor for life, and in the potluck, as symbolized in our rituals, the power of the Hamatsa is tamed and he is ready to be chief. In our traditional system of governance, there are no political parties. Rather, we seek to govern through the principles of consensus and the role of leaders is to seek that consensus. We meet, and while not everyone may agree on every aspect, we debate the issues and seek general agreement to help ensure that decisions are balanced, supported, and will be enduring standing the test of time. We are expected to tell the truth and to speak up. Everyone speaks. While this may sound idealistic to some who have never lived it, I assure you it is very real. My grandmother used to joke with us that when it came to the respective roles of women and men, that the women were too busy and too important to be chiefs. But in all seriousness, we come from a communitarian culture. 
Everybody has a role to play in making our communities work well. The roles are very different, but equally as important in terms of ensuring the community functions the way it should. I call it balance. In fact, our whole system was about balance, between men and women, between clans and between tribes. I am fortunate to come from a strong and loving family. My grandmother and parents certainly raised me to be proud of who I am, to know where I came from, to believe in myself and to recognize my rights and responsibilities. I was raised to lead from a very young age. My family instilled in me a sense of community and duty, that I had something to give back and to contribute, to use my skills and abilities such as they are to improve the quality of life for our peoples and others. In many ways, my role as a Hilagatse has carried over into all aspects of my life. My upbringing, my education, my professional and personal experiences have all helped shape my worldview and the way I try to conduct myself. Given our history as Indigenous peoples, it is important to appreciate the context for how many of our leaders have felt compelled to comport themselves in their interactions within broader society. The colonial experience has not been easy for Indigenous peoples, and this brings me to my second reflection on our power, our voices, the abuse of power, and the power imbalance that has been a destructive part of the history of this country. When the Fathers of Confederation came together in 1864 in Charlottetown, and then again a month later in Quebec to lay out the foundation for Canada, Indigenous peoples were not present. They were left out. This, despite the early treaty making and the many political and military alliances made with Indigenous peoples under the auspices of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. During the time of the Royal Proclamation, the colonial authorities actually recognized the power of the nations or tribes of Indians and the need to make treaties with them. Unfortunately, after Confederation, Crown policy became one of assimilation, not mutual recognition, which this week the report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls constituted as genocide. One of the most insidious of tools used to propagate the policy of assimilation, as you are all aware, was the Indian Act. The Indian Act is colonial legislation that the government enacted to govern and define the relationship between indigenous peoples and the rest of Canada. It imposed an alien system of governance that divided the 80 plus tribes or indigenous nations into 630 plus administrative units called bands. It established reserves and set out how the bands would be governed, as well as who was legally an Indian and how this Indian status was passed on. The system was designed to ultimately enfranchise and assimilate Indians. Among other racist policies of the government, it created residential schools to remove the Indian from the child. But for Indigenous women in Canada, the colonial experience was particularly harsh, and still is, again, as the findings of the report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls clearly illustrate. The Indian Act, in turning Indigenous social and political systems on their head, often shifted the balance of power between men and women. For example, the Indian Act system does not acknowledge matrilineal heritage. By eradicating hereditary leadership structures, the act abolished the central role of women in many of our tribes in raising 
teaching, guiding, and regulating chiefs, for example, playing the role of a hilagatse I mentioned earlier. Under the Indian Act, initially, only men could run and vote for chief and council. To make matters worse, if a woman married a man who was not registered as an Indian, she lost her status as an Indian and her right to be a member of the band. Legally, she was cast out, if not physically. Conversely, a non-Indian woman who married a man became a legal Indian. In many ways, the Indian Act distinctly suppressed women who had often been decision makers as well as providers in indigenous societies and sought to remove us from public life. Indigenous women did not get the right to run for chief or council and vote in band elections until 1951, more than 80 years after Canada became a country. There have, of course, been some changes to the system, the result of advocacy, litigation, and shifts in public opinion. But the effects of marginalization and overt and covert forms of specific discrimination against Indigenous women remain with us. Yet, despite this history, this tragedy, what is so powerful today and so very encouraging and gives me great optimism is the demonstrated resilience of Indigenous peoples, and in particular, Indigenous women, reflected in the integral role they are playing for the process of decolonization and the transition during this period of governance, reform, and Indigenous nation rebuilding. It is often women who are in the forefront of advancing the process of true reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, which means confronting and ending the legacy of colonialism in Canada and replacing it with a future built on Indigenous self-determination, including self-government through a rights-based and principled approach, which must include a legislation and major policy shifts across government. I think of the hundreds of women either living in Indigenous communities, living and working on reserve, or living and working in our cities, and who are not living in their ancestral homelands who are leading the fundamental community development work that needs to take place to move through what I often have called the post-colonial door. Women are truly driving the needed governance and program reform to get beyond the Indian Act and other colonial institutions, something that became very clear to me in my work as BC Regional Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Women are involved in rebuilding the institutions of good governance. It is the women who typically show up at community meetings and then roll up their sleeves to develop the solutions and inclusive policy moving forward. Without minimizing the role of men, I truly believe that Indigenous women are the forces of real change, of decolonization. So while Indigenous women are making progress politically and socially, we can and must do better. Whether within the confines of the institutions we are transitioning away from, or those that we are evolving to replace them. This brings me to my third reflection. On my experience over the past three and a half years as an Indigenous woman in national mainstream politics, and as a member of Parliament, and as the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, of course, I am very proud to continue to serve as the Member of Parliament for Vancouver Granville just as serving as the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General of Canada for over three and a half years and Minister of Veterans Affairs was truly an honour. With respect to Indigenous issues, as a proud Indigenous woman with the great responsibility of being Canada's first ever Indigenous Minister of Justice and Attorney General, I must say I felt a moral imperative to carry on the work of generations of Indigenous leaders before me and to help advance the necessary shifts that need to take place to transform the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the Crown. 
I often said that I saw my appointment to that role not so much as a personal accomplishment, but rather as a symbol of how far Canada has come, but also of how much further we have to go. I still believe this, perhaps now more than ever. We have seen real progress in patterns of thought, actions, and relations in the last decade, and we cannot diminish this fact. This is the fruit of the work and the advocacy by Indigenous peoples, and many alongside. Even a decade ago, the work of reconciliation and justice and addressing colonialism was out of sight and out of mind for most Canadians. We have brought it out of the shadows. Much more has to be done, of course, but we are driving it forward. I know we will carry on advocating for the necessary transformative actions that will create the space, the foundation for self-determination and the rebuilding of Indigenous nations within Canada. We all need to be advocates in this work. It is the work I was doing as BC Regional Chief and as a council member in my own community before becoming Minister of Justice and Attorney General, a role I took, of course, very seriously, although at times it was a challenge and incredibly frustrating. As I stated in a speech last year when I was Minister of Justice and Attorney General, in my own experience serving as the first Indigenous person to be Canada's Minister of Justice and Attorney General, I have unfortunately had it reinforced that when addressing Indigenous issues, no matter what table one sits around, or in what position, or with what title and appearance of influence and power, the experience of marginalization can still carry with you. But this does not deter me. It only makes my resolve stronger and more determined. Apparently, this statement was truer than I imagined. Within a few months, I had made my very public, very proud, very liberating journey from the front bench of the governing party in the House of Commons to sitting in the furthest corner seat possible. This reality for essentially doing my job as an out-of-context siligatse. This brings me to my last reflection on our country today, on creating balance and a vision for our collective future. If you like, some lessons learned and what more needs to be done. The events of the last few months have brought some further illustrations to light regarding women in politics and why we need more women in politics. Some of it is obvious. The standards one is held to and the double standards. How easy it is to label in racialized and gendered terms that when a woman pushes back, stands up for principles, and relies on their lived experience or brings forward actual knowledge and experience, they are easily and reflexively labeled as difficult. Well, what I would like to say on this is that if doing those things is being difficult, I am proud to be difficult every day of my life. And of course, we see that a woman's lived experience is often used against us as a reason for marginalization, as a basis for blame. We see experience ultimately being used as a part of a rationale for marginalization. Rather than upholding experience, using it as a lens to reconsider the norms of what one perceives or believes or chooses to uphold, we see a lack of reflection, or as it has sometimes been stated, that we experience things differently. In politics, where one is deemed difficult for speaking the truth or for doing your job or acting on principles, and then you are told you experienced it differently, it is time for the culture of politics to change. And to facilitate this change, the systems and rules need to be changed. And people, patterns of thought, and ways of relating need to change as well. 
to really make the change we need for women to infiltrate politics and to transform our political culture more than ever before, including confronting the divisiveness of partisanship. We need more independent voices to affect the transition. This is one of the major reasons I embrace being an independent member of parliament. One who will continue to work hard and serve with this objective in mind. I think it's fair to say that the current parliamentary system is structured in a way that impedes transformative change and that it breeds conflict and divisions rather than supporting lawmakers learning from each other. It favors privilege and norms and ways of doing business that make limited space for the lived experience and solutions that women, indigenous peoples, and other people in our society can bring forward. When I say this, I do so with respect and from the privilege of being in Canada, in a country where we are making progress. So, when we consider where we have come from and where we are going, we need to consider context and where we are relative to others. There is, in reality, a continuum of progress with respect to the issues women face, both in our country and globally. Internationally, Canada has a role to play, and we must lead by example. We can provide hope to so many. We must help to seek to eliminate barriers to equality everywhere, addressing the challenges that prevent women and girls from reaching their full potential. Women must be empowered to improve their own lives and those of their families, communities, and countries. Whether here at home or abroad, simply put, empowering women and girls empowers humanity. The recent announcement by my former colleague, Minister Monsef of the Investment to the Women's Equality Fund is very significant. These investments by Canada will be a game changer for many. But that said, it does not buy us all a hall pass or absolve us for our own transgressions or the need to do better. While Canada is a leader, this does not mean that there is no room for improvement or that we can think that just because someone is empathetic or an ally that there may not still be issues. Being supportive cannot be used as a cover for bad behavior or where systemic problems ensure old ways still govern. On the contrary, it makes us have to do more. Yes, we may be further along the continuum of empowerment than for many parts of the world, but we are still not where we are ultimately going to end up if we keep on fighting. Empowerment of women is, of course, one dimension of social diversity. Inclusiveness is a fundamental tenet or key value of democratic polities, so that all voices have a role in decision-making, whether defined by gender, ethnicity, religion, region, economic status, age, or education. For me, it has always been a matter of common sense, not just morally, but economically. Discrimination and equality hurts economies, particularly in expanding knowledge-based economies like ours, where you need to maximize a nation's collective human potential. A country will never compete if they are not driving on all cylinders of their population. There are things we can do in terms of institutional design and democratic reform to support the participation of women and other groups in public life to effectively control the exercise of power and create balance. As a wise person once said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Controlling power is critical and redefining power so that it can be seen as valuing and upholding those strengths and capacities of each of us is critical. 
One thing I have come to appreciate in both Indigenous and non-Indigenous politics is that far too often people are seeking power for the sake of power itself, which is incredibly dangerous for society, and in particular when governing in the complex world we live in. As in my culture, we have to tame the Hamatsa. Modern democracies require that those who are governed are elected to do so for the right reasons and must be held accountable. At the end of the day, it is the people who keep the leaders and governments honest, which is, of course, much easier when the institutions for good governance are in place. But if people do not participate, we risk much. When the voice of the people is lost or truth is questioned, our governments are not held to account and, as a result, our individual opportunities as well as our collective prospects for a better future are severely diminished. As both a woman and an indigenous person, where our rights to participate in our systems of governance were denied for so many years, I place great value, as I know you all do, on citizen engagement and ensuring broad participation in our political processes. So. In closing, let me leave you with this. Please know and be confident that we all have a role to play in ultimately improving the quality of life in our communities. Each role is equally as important and is critical to ensuring that society functions as it should. Always speak the truth. Be guided by principles and integrity. It will never steer you wrong. Yes, there will be challenges and setbacks, but we all have a voice and we need to support each other in using our voices. And together, we have the power to change the world. Each of us in our own way is a hiligatse. We have an important role to play in guiding the path forward and helping our societies find balance and flourish. Together, we can correct the imbalance we experience in society and help amplify the voices and power of those who have been muted for too long. All my relations come, every nation come.
Say.